Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as a part of serving our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HCS2014. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Health Connect South Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your morning again today. I'm joined in studio, as always, by my co-host, partner in crime, and part of the reason why we're able to have this show, Diana Keogh of Sherwick Media Group. Great to be here again. And uh, I'm really pleased to have the guests in studio that we have today. We were able to catch up with them around the uh, 2015 Center of Excellent Leadership Conference for the National Parkinson's Foundation. And I uh, was really glad to have them come by and uh, share some information with us. I've got the president and CEO of National Parkinson's Foundation, Joyce Oberdorf, with us in studio. She's going to share a little bit about their focus, how they're helping the Parkinson's community and those that uh, love them. So thanks for taking time. I know you've got a hectic schedule, so making time for us here is uh, very much appreciated. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And uh, I'm always very uh, honored to have folks who are dealing with whatever, you know, particularly we do a lot of discussion about a variety of health issues. Uh, and so when someone who's dealing with whatever case we're talking about in this situation, Parkinson's disease, we have Larry Kahn. He's a gentleman who himself has uh, early onset Parkinson's disease. He's here to talk to us about his own experience, his story, and um, kind of finding out that he had Parkinson's and kind of where he's gone with that because he refused to be defeated by that wanted to be very active with regards to how he approached Parkinson's disease in his life and had found some things that have kind of made his quality of life improved and he's sharing that with people in the community so I'm very honored to have you in the studio to share your story thanks a lot Larry thank you the honor's all mine <laughs> and you know, we can start with you, if you, if that's okay, Larry, and, and kind of uh, take us through your background, uh, your history, as far as um, how long ago did things start happening that made you kind of wonder what's going on? And if you can, you know, just share a little bit about your story as, as your journey with Parkinson's disease began. Sure. Uh, I was a tax attorney for 20 years or so and retired early. And somewhere around the time I retired, I noticed I had a slight tremor in, in, in my pinky sort of like what you hear with Michael J. Fox. It, it, it started years before it was actually diagnosed. Always there, though. Every time you'd uh, look at it, it was doing that. Yeah, very slight tremor. And my doctor looked at it and, and said, it's just benign familial tremor. Didn't send me to a neurologist or anything. Mm. But at, at some point, about four and a half years ago, it took a little bit of a turn. It, it had what they call a pill rolling effect, where the fingers roll together. Uh. And uh, he, he said, maybe we should have a neurologist check that out. And the neurologist said, no, it's benign familial tremor. <laughs> and then uh, six months later, the, um, my racquetball partner, who's also a doctor, said, you know, you probably have Parkinson's. And, and uh, <laughs> went back to the neurologist, and he, he agreed. He, he said I had a very good racquetball partner. Wow. So what did your racquetball partner see that your neurologist had missed? Well, you know, the neurologist just sees you in twenty minutes in a twenty-minute period for once a year. My racquetball partner saw me twice a week, and during exercise, the tremor would become very pronounced, mm. and that—that's one of the the telltale signs. I mean, cold, stress, and exercise tend to bring out the the tremor a, a little bit more. And you, you know, he was absolutely right. And it, probably got it diagnosed a year or two earlier than I might have if it had not been for him. What kind of specialist, just out of curiosity, was your, your racquetball partner? He's actually a public health specialist, never practiced medicine a day in his life. Interesting. That's very interesting. But, but <laughs> he, 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 he's also one of the most brilliant doctors that I, I know. 
And so for you as a, as a patient, you were experiencing this change that, you know, even if it was kind of subtle, it may, may or may not have been overly intrusive on your, on your daily life at that point in time. But I mean, I'm sure you were kind of wondering what the heck's going on. Did, I mean, when, when you were told, no, it's just a, it's just a, an aging thing. Um, what was, what was your reaction to that inside it? Were you thinking mm, that just doesn't seem right? Or were you like, Oh, okay, you're, you're the man, you, you know, the deal. Um, I, I was always suspicious that it was Parkinson's. When I, when I went in the first time, I, I thought for sure he was going to tell me I had Parkinson's and was very surprised when they said benign familial tremor. Um, so it never came as a real shock to me when, when it turned out to ultimately be Parkinson's disease. Now, when they say familial tremor, does that mean that someone else in your family had had a similar situation in their in their life as well where they had like a a tremor of their hands or something to that effect is that where that comes from i'm not familiar with it so i have ignorant i I believe that's the case and he he had he had asked me if anybody else in my family had tremors and in fact my father had a slight tremor that was benign now for the benefit of the listeners because they can't they're not sitting here in the studio and they don't know how young you are um, tell tell the listeners how old you were when you were diagnosed, if you don't mind my asking. I don't mind at all. I, I uh, just turned 50. I'm 54 now. Um, as as you, you mentioned earlier, uh, young onset PD affects a much smaller percentage of the population. 50 is sort of the cutoff that most people use, and I think it's 10 or 15% of the patients fall below that, that threshold. Now, Joyce... You know, typical. This is not typical. So, can you tell again, for the benefit of those that are listening, what kind of signs, symptoms for you know a regular person that's being diagnosed with with Parkinson's? Well, uh, Diana, thank you. Um, actually, in in some ways, it is typical. It's typical for there to be a very subtle change in movement. It could be tremors that are more at rest as opposed to when you're reaching for something. It can be rigidity, slowness of movement, trouble with balance. It can be small handwriting, Mm -hmm. micrographia, when your handwriting gets really, really tiny all of a sudden, loss of a sense of smell. That can be, those two can be one of the earliest signs of Parkinson's. Trouble sleeping, constipation, a general feeling of um, fatigue, slow uh, soft voices or low mask face expression, loss of facial expression, dizziness, all of these sort of vague sense that something is not quite right. And in general, we have found that it's not unusual for it to take two years or more to get a diagnosis. Mm. And is it typically for those folks uh, that are experiencing these symptoms? I assume they're probably talking to their primary care physician at first and then they recommend them to go on to a neurologist is probably the course of flow for most people. Is that- yes, that's absolutely right. And there are all different levels of neurologists. The neurologists that have extra training are called movement disorder specialists. Those are a specialty within neurology. So those would be sort of the highest level of training available. But even after diagnosis, about half the people in this country are still being treated by their primary care physician. Mm-hmm. And talk about that, because, I mean, clearly there must be some measure of need for information on this matter. Um, there, there's apparently some, some other things out there in, in the motor function world uh, of disorders that can cause some similar-looking uh, things. As, as we were talking with Larry, he had some tremor and, and hand movements that he noticed that were new that were thought to be a familiar tremor um, as it relates to somebody that's starting to experience some of those things. They've either, you know, I assume that it, that like the handwriting change, for example, is probably insidious enough that maybe they just feel like they're, they're getting older and their handwriting has changed. They don't necessarily maybe not notice it, but as it relates to a person going to be seen uh, doing some self advocacy, how is, how is the, the actual definitive diagnosis made so that, um, we don't mistakenly get delayed in terms of being able to maybe get some treatment on board that would you know, potentially slow the progress of my disease. Okay. Well, the diagnosis is made through a combination of physical tests that an experienced neurologist or movement disorder uh, physician would make. And these tests consist of very simple movements such as 
finger tapping and so forth, where they look for um, the uh, a certain type of tremor. The tremor in Parkinson's actually has a particular um, variation to it. It it it's a tremor at a particular frequency, if you will, and so it's a very distinct type of tremor that an expert neurologist can recognize and describe that again. Because for the listeners, like, what's that frequency like? Tell me about that, or how do you describe that? It, it, it's a particular frequency of movement of the tremor that, again, happen, happens at rest. So it's not as though you're reaching for something. You're just sitting there, and your hand, for example, is just doing its own thing and, and tremoring and shaking. And it's just doing its own thing, and it's a very, uh, yeah, a very sort of um, classic movement. Um, that most neurologists would just recognize in a heartbeat. An essential tremor can look very much the same. The difference is an essential tremor does not progress, does not get worse. Catherine Hepburn had an essential tremor of Mm -hmm. both her voice as well as a little bit of a bobbing of her head. Mm -hmm. And that is something that can be inherited, does not get a say, does not, does not, uh, Progress. Parkinson's will progress. It usually starts on one side and then involves both sides. So one of the things that physicians can do now is there is a scan. It's called a DAT scan that will uh, look almost like an MRI of the brain where it will look at what reserves of dopamine are in your brain and if they see a uh, distinct depletion of dopamine, which is the chemical that's low in Parkinson's, they can then diagnose it as one of a Parkinson's family of diseases that does not uh, differentiate between them. But one of the things to recall is that you could be taking other medications that could be giving you Parkinson's-like symptoms. And so that's why it's very important to go to an experienced neurologist with your whole family history and your whole personal medical history to be able to tell the difference. Yeah. You've been listening to Joyce Oberdorf, president and CEO of the National Parkinson Foundation. And we're also joined in a studio by Larry Kahn. He's a gentleman who himself is uh, dealing with Parkinson's disease in his own life. And uh, we're getting some information out there for folks that uh, who are listening that Maybe their loved one is experiencing some symptoms that are worrisome that it might possibly be Parkinson. And, and Larry shared in his own story that initially it was not straightaway diagnosed as Parkinson's disease. And I, that's one of the reasons why we're kind of trying to focus on these things a little bit, just so that folks can advocate either for themselves or their loved one in the diagnosis phase, ask questions um, that uh, that might help them or guide their provider because sometimes that you know sometimes we we have training and that leads us to think a certain way and and might blind us to other su- subtle signs that could get us to the true diagnosis here in this case it delayed your 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 finding out for sure what you had going on um, and you were going to say something there uh, yeah one, one one of the things that's typical is, is, is with practicing physicians is is that that there, there's still of the belief that there's nothing you can do for Parkinson's. That, that even if if they make the diagnosis, the only thing you can do is medicate and mask the symptoms. And one of the things that that we came across that was surprising, and, and it took took us a good year and a half to to find this research, was, was that vigorous and varied exercise can, can actually slow the progression. And that's something that the National Parkinson's Foundation has been pushing. And it, it's not something that, that, that all practicing physicians and even neurologists are, are on top of right now. Yeah, I assume that's probably the study. Um, Eric Alskog, uh, does vigorous exercise have a neuroprotective effect in Parkinson's disease from the American Academy of Neurology? You brought that with you. How long did it take you to find that? You know, as you started looking in, you found out you have Parkinson's. Okay, now what can I do? I, I spent a year and a half doing nothing because my doctor told me there was nothing I could do and the tremor didn't bother me. I'm not a vain person. Right. So I just went on uh, doing what I was doing, which was writing books. Uh, my wife at, at, at the same time was reading as much as she could about it. She had found the National Parks and Foundation website, knew about all the medications, uh, knew about support groups. And when she thought that it was time for me to, to 
dive into it, she suggested I go to a support group. And at the, the, the very first meeting, which I went to reluctantly. Um, <laughs> like th- most men would. Yeah. Um, we're still finding that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at the very, very first meeting, there, there was uh, two physical therapists who were talking about exercise and, and telling us that we need to be exercising outside our comfort zone, not just lollygagging along on the elliptical like I had been watching Seinfeld reruns. Um, and the other guest that they had at the meeting was some folks offering a free Tai Chi workshop uh, from the Yellow River Center, and they uh, were touting a study from uh, Oregon that, that said that Tai Chi can slow the progression of PD. So for, for the first time, I, I, I had the sense there was something I could do, that I could take a little bit of control back, and I started reading myself and found these, these incredible body of research out there. So with Tai Chi, you're going to be doing a lot of core engagement, doing some movements that involve balance and, and kind of almost strengthening, sort of similar to yoga, I assume, in, in some ways, in terms of um, what it's trying to achieve. It's, it's interesting and, and fortunate for you that you were able to link up with one of those types of resources when you happen to be there, because otherwise you may not have realized the effect of it. And now look what you're doing with what you learned there. You want to talk about that? Uh, well, yeah, it, it took me a, a, a few years. I, I'm not someone who jumps into the, the water. I put my toe in first and went to a few uh, Parkinson's disease conferences and, and learned about advocacy and what people were doing. And it, it, in talking to a lot of people in Facebook support groups, my support group at, at these conferences, I discovered that my story w- was very common, that, that people weren't discovering that the the support community for year or, 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 or two after diagnosis, and they weren't hearing from their doctors about exercise at all. So, uh, And that's including neurologists that are following the patients, I'm assuming. It's probably just whoever they're seeing. Yeah. My, my first ne- neurologist, when asked about exercise, uh, told me to rotate my shoulder once a day. Um, <laughs> he's no longer my neurologist. The, uh, the, the second one... one uh, suggested Tai Chi, and I showed him the study that you mentioned, and, and he became very interested in, in uh, the more vigorous activities that, that we were engaged in. We, we started a, a boxing program here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. co- uh, which we called PD Gladiators. And uh, it, it's a very in, intense workout. It offers all, kinds, all four kinds of exercise that are recommended for all Americans, but for people with Parkinson's in particular cardiorespiratory, flexibility, strength, or resistance, and neuromotor, which is uh, agility and balance training. Now, I think it's interesting, when we were talking earlier about um, kind of the early period when you were didn't yet know that it was Parkinson's that you were dealing with, you talked about the fact that sometimes during exercise, tremors can be heightened. And yet, one of the things that the study mentions is that uh, the, you know, the neurologic function and uh, Cognitive scoring, for example, is improved with with exercise. How does that come together when you're when you're training? What's your experience? Do you find, as it relates to you know tremulousness while you're doing your thing? I mean, is it increased while you're exercising, or do you find that over time you deal with it less? Or in your, is that has that affected like medications and things like that that you're taking? That's a really good question, and it's one that I use the Ask the Doctor forum on the National Parkinson Foundation website to, to resolve. I, I found that I, that I, I was uh, tremoring a lot more after the, the boxing workout, and I used the Ask the Doctor forum to ask if that was typical and if there's anything I could do. And uh, the doctor suggested taking a, a, an extra half pill or, or a pill a half hour before exercise, and my, my own neurologist concurred with that. And it... it really does steady, steady me uh, during the exercise. So I end up taking a, a little heavier dose on, on the days when I'm doing boxing. Yeah. But um, I, I do also want to add, uh, for Larry's experience, is not unusual. However, one of the things that the research shows is exercise is good for people with Parkinson's to slow the disease. It's not just because it's aerobic and you're physically fit and therefore Mm -hmm. you can withstand the rigors of Parkinson's better. What exercise does for all of us 
is exercise increases the production of chemicals in your brain that are like miracle grow. They are designed, they are there when we're born, we live with them. They are designed to revive dying brain cells and protect healthy ones. For someone with Parkinson's who has a bunch of dying brain cells, ramping up these chemicals is really a good thing. And that's why it slows the disease. Every time you exercise with Parkinson's, it's like sprinkling miracle grow on your brain. That's interesting. And one of the things the study mentions, is it talks about the, the neurochemicals that you, you mentioned and says numerous studies in seniors with and without dementia have reported increased cerebral gray matter volumes associated with physical fitness or exercise. So clearly, you know, the miracle grow right. from exercise truly does have an effect that they've studied. Um, so it's great information to be sharing. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, as you got started with PD Gladiators, you probably found a following fairly quickly. Um, we, we started out with, 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 with about 20 people. Uh, a few of them dropped out over, over the course of the past year. Uh, our active membership has increased to about 40. Um, any given class now nowadays, we, we, we get about 20 to 22 people. And how long are you training when, you, when you're doing your, your classes? Uh, we do it Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays for 75 minutes. And is that about the recommended frequency? Is it, you know, is there harm in doing it more frequently? Like if somebody was motivated and had the capacity to do it daily, is there drawbacks? Or, you know, is there kind of a recommended dose, if you will, of, of that kind of training? Uh, it's, it's interesting you should ask that. It's, it's something that's currently being studied. I know at the University of Alabama, th- their uh, exercise studies department is actually doing studies to try to determine the correct dose. Um, now we're, we're a, a little bit on our own. We've, we've got the CDC guidelines, the uh, American Academy of Sports Medicine di- guidelines, uh, which I can't recite off the top of my head. but. but <laughs> Uh, basically, a, a, an hour of exercise a day w- of various kinds w- will probably get you the, the recommended benefits. Well, they uh, actually they have measured it, and it is four times a week. Okay. An hour a day, four times a week. And obviously, vigorous. The things you're doing are, you know, they would be having me gasping for air pretty quickly myself if I were to do it today. And I'm not dealing with any kind of major issues yet that I know of. Um, so, is that the ideal situation? Is something that's really going to get your heart rate going, get the muscles really moving? Sounds like uh, obviously doing things like boxing moves and stuff like that's really going to be quite right, quite athletic. Right. To, to release the, the brain chemicals that Joyce was mentioning, you, 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 need to get your, your, you need to get out of your comfort zone, is, is what they say. If, if you're someone who hasn't been exercising and it's hard to take a walk and that puts you out of breath, then you, you, you need to walk a little faster and, and be out of breath and, mm-hmm. and, and just keep increasing your, your, your capacity as you, as you go on. You're talking to uh, Larry Kahn, a gentleman who's been combating Parkinson's disease in his own life and uh, had learned along the course of uh, reading and learning about his disease that uh, vigorous exercise is a um, a way to combat the progression of the disease and and slow its effects um, on on his daily life. And, you know, I'm sure that some of our listeners would will be listening to where you're talking about Tai Chi and boxing type activities and uh, like I was saying earlier about my own response, if I were to try it right now, they feel like, oh, geez, I'm not athletic. I, 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 can't, I can't work out. Is there a way for that person who's historically not been somebody who was really working out or very active in their daily life, can they transition into doing some measure of, of this kind of activity? Or is just like you say, walking briskly better than nothing, I would assume? Uh, everybody has their preferred mode of exercise. Some some people do it on their own. Uh, walking, if you're not doing anything, is a good start. Uh, using an elliptical or a treadmill is fine. We uh, recommend group exercise for a number of reasons. We formed a network of programs with the help of the National Parkinson's Foundation. And uh, not, not, not only does it create sort of a... a a competitive atmosphere where, where you're trying to work a little harder than the guy next to you. Uh, it, it creates a natural support group, which a lot of people wouldn't otherwise go to. You know, we, we, we sit around and talk about doctors in the community. 
uh, talk about our medications. Some people have, have gone to their doctors and um, made serious changes to their medication based on what they've heard from other people. So we think we think it's important that the people get together and and, and be, become part of the community. Mm-hmm. Advocating for each other uh, and w- with their interactions with their clinicians. And, and something that you mentioned uh, as it relates to the National Parkinson's Foundation um, might be a good time to, to kind of talk about that kind of collaboration because I know you started PD Gladiators and kind of got that moving, but now there's a bit of a collaboration with National Parkinson Foundation. I saw something about Moving Day Gives Back, for example, and there's some grant funds that the uh, MPF provides to you know, facilitate things like this that are obviously having some positive impacts on patient outcomes in their daily life. Um, so can you talk about how that came to be and, and uh, what that's done for, for PD Gladiators? And, and, and then Joyce can probably talk about it more on the national scale, other things that uh, can get involved with the NPF. Uh, the NPF has, has been in- incredibly generous with us. Uh, they held their first annual walk in in Atlanta called the Moving Day Walk in 2013, raised a little under $150,000 and, and, and gave back $50,000 to the community through individual grants. Um, the, the, the grants that averaged $5,000, that they were trying to, to uh, distribute it in small amounts. And we had had this idea that if we created a, a network of, of of group fitness classes and created something with 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 a lot of heft and, and credibility but behind us we could actually get the attention of of the medical community and 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 you know for lack of a better word teach the doctors about right. the, the the studies that are out there that that are kind of stuck in the ivory tower yes um, so we we spoke to a representative of, of of the MPF before we applied for the for the grants and asked them if there was a way we we could get get a little bit more than five thousand dollars and and to our surprise they suggested that we submit multiple applications and and they would consider all of them and and they uh, granted three applications for PD gladiators um, one with one of which was specifically for. Uh, mar- marketing and promoting th- the exercise studies to practicing neurologists and, and, and other members of the medical community. Um, and they also made a $5,000 grant to, to the boxing program, which, w- which is run through another foundation. So they, they've been directly responsible for our great success. The credibility that we got fr- from that grant and that association allowed us to partner with the YMCA and doubled the size of our network. They, they've uh, created a PD Gladiators at the Y program, which oh. ha- is offered in 13 Atlanta branches, and they offer 18 weekly classes. So the PD Gladiators Metro Atlanta Fitness Network, which is sponsored by the NPF, uh, has a total of 41 weekly classes now for people with Parkinson's. Oh, that's awesome. All across yeah. the metro area. Now, does it cost, if I'm a Parkinson's patient, does it cost me funds to, to, to be a part or is it is it free most of the classes are five dollars the, oh. the, the the retail value of, of a class like that is ten or fifteen dollars per, per hour and we're working on offering financial assistance to people who really need it and does that carry over into the the y as well when when they go to the y is it, it if they're not a member of the ymca because it has membership fees obviously can they participate in those classes that are held there as well in the similar fashion the the ymca is offering reduced memberships through our website www.pdgladiators.org um, if they go through the link on our website they'll they'll get a a reduced member referral rate, and uh, the Y also offers financial assistance. They, the Y never turns anybody away. It, 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 you would have to file a separate application, but they, they're very generous with their financial assistance. It was a nice strategic move to accelerate the rate you know, and availability mm-hmm. of your classes by collaborating with them. Have you talked to any of the other ones like LA Fitness, for example, some of those other fitness locations that have places around the community that might be able to kind of similarly support what you're doing? The, the, the Y is very different than, than the other gyms. They, they offer more of a sense of community. I see. And we're content with our, our relationship with the YMCA at this point. 
you know, if other people don't need that and 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 exercise best on their own, just using the machines, I'd say have at it. Um, but for my money, I, I would go with the YMCA. Okay. You know, I'm also struck by, I mean, there's, how many classes do you have? I, I mean, 41. Th- that's a lot of people with Parkinson's that are, I mean, Joyce, speak to that because, I mean, yeah. we're talking about, I mean, this is just one community yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. How how extensive is Parkinson's disease? Like a, that, mi- a million that people in the nation living with it? Is a million that right? people, right. 60,000 new diagnoses every year. Wow. But uh, And the prevalence as the baby boomer generation gets older, the average age of diagnosis is 60. So that whole incidence is expected to just triple in the next 20 years. I mean, I'm really happy his program is doing so well, but I, I mean, my, that started making my heart beat a lot faster. <laughs> yeah. that this is a lot of people yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. A lot of people. It really is. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are some geographies in the country where there's a greater prevalence than others. It tends to follow particularly uh, what I would call heavy industrial areas and also heavy agricultural areas. So there is a high prevalence in California and on the West Coast. There's a high prevalence through the upper Midwest. And then there's a high prevalence in all those, maybe those Southwestern areas where all those people might have retired or might have migrated to, right? In Arizona, in Florida, and in also in Georgia. So we're seeing it all throughout the country, but there are some sort of pockets of, of higher concentrations. And so what's the link between Parkinson's and industrialized areas? Yeah, I was wondering, is there an environmental stressor of some kind that Stress. <laughs> well, absolutely. So there, Parkinson's is, is thought to be a combination of genetic susceptibility right. with environmental exposure. Okay. They have already identified certain chemicals as actually causing Parkinson's in a lab. Pesticides, certain pesticides okay. that some of them are no longer used, thank God. But things like paraquat that was used in Vietnam, Agent Orange that causes Parkinson's um, and has been proven to, and that's why uh, Parkinson's is a service-related disability for veterans who are in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Things like degreasing agents that were used in heavy manufacturing, carbon technochloride, dry cleaning fluid, these have been proven in the lab to cause neurological degeneration that leads to Parkinson's. So I assume that if it's not already there, there's got to be something in the works to try to identify genetic markers that would say you're at risk, similar to what they have now with Alzheimer's, for example, that right. where they can say, yes, you're you're one of those persons that is carrying the gene, you're at grave risk for this you know, affecting you. And well, they find, again, keep in mind that Parkinson's in general population overall is about 1%, 1.5%. Mm-hmm. So the numbers get uh, increase as you get older, maybe about 10% of those people over 60. So it's still relatively a small incidence, not like heart disease or diabetes. But they have found clusters of certain genes, some of which are relatively rare, uh, some more prevalent in young onset folks. And then they've also found some populations, particularly North African, uh, North African Berbers, along with Ashkenazi Jews, who do carry a uh, susceptibility caused by a genetic mutation called the LARC2 mutation. And that's a mutation where one out of three estimated, one out of three Ashkenazi Jews has this mutation, and if you have it, you have a 70% chance of getting Parkinson's by the age of 70. Interesting. I actually had never heard that before. Yeah, so it's about a one in four chance if you if you do have the gene. There, now, Larry's program, he talked um, quite complimentary about the National Parkinson's Foundation, the grants, and the Ask a Doctor. Can you talk a little bit about those resources that are available and to what extent? I mean, he, here's one in the community of Atlanta. Talk to me about what's happening nas- nationwide. Yeah, well, nationwide, we have a variety of resources, and they're all aimed to help people live better lives today and get better care and treatment today with the idea that better todays really will add up to a better tomorrow eventually. So for us, we have, for example, 
uh, a 1-800 helpline, 1-800-4PD-INFO. That's staffed by nurses and social workers. They refer people to local resources. We get free education materials out. And there's actually someone who you can talk to about your issues. And we follow up with people. We call them back. And we ask on how people are doing. We have uh, chapters and support groups all around the country that offer the kind of care and support that Larry was referring to, support groups, education, and wellness classes. We also have online resources, such as our website, uh, parkinson.org. We get about uh, one and a half million visitors a year to that. That's the most visited uh, website on Parkinson's on the web. And that has things like our Ask the Doc column, very popular. You just really type in an email, and you'll get an answer within 24 hours of a question with, uh, uh, you know, not medical practice, but here's some issues for you to consider when you talk to your physician. We also have tools that help people on the education side. We have our very popular Aware and Care Kit. We've distributed some 40,000 of those free kits to help people get the care they need in a hospital. A lot of times people have other things happen to them. They're in a car accident. They need hip surgery or knee surgery. A person with Parkinson's goes into the hospital. The first thing they do is they take all their medications away. And there's a lack of awareness that to someone with Parkinson's, medications are as important as insulin, uh, yeah, insulin to the diabetic. And all of these resources are available in English and in Spanish. We have Spanish-speaking people manning our helpline daily. And in terms of Moving Day, which Larry spoke about, Moving Day is our national walk program. It happens in 25 cities around the country. In the last three years, we've raised over $8 million, and the majority of that stays local Mm -hmm. to build communities, build wellness programs, build programs in that community to help people in those communities all around the U.S. Now, are there similar programs to kind of what Larry started here locally with PD Gladiators, getting people moving, doing vigorous exercise? Are are other places either already doing that or following suit based on kind of what we're seeing here? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I know that that's one of the big things about the MPF is is as we talked about early on was best practices being shared when we find something that has a positive impact. So it would seem that that would certainly be traveling the the country. Yes, absolutely. We work with both uh, community centers, such as YMCAs, around the country. In Florida, I'll say we have a popular program that's at Seven Wise now. It's called Surf and Turf. Uh, They named it themselves. And that is a program of land-based physical therapy and in-pool activity and exercise. I love that name. Surf and Turf. Those people just they just love that, and maybe then they go out to have a free you know surf and turf dinner. Who knows? Um, we also work with Jewish community centers. We are in uh, one city with New York, and then we are expanding to four other cities across the U.S. to include wellness with education, uh, you know, exercise, education, support. The whole sort of round program will be in Boston. In May, we'll be in Washington, D.C., and then we'll be expanding from there. Now, I know that we talked, you know, as I mentioned, the the best practices, and, and one of the key components for the National Parkinson Foundation is your centers of excellence. You have multiple locations around the country. Um, you know, talk about those. What is their role? Um, and, and then as it relates to research, I would assume that there's probably some research value with the people that are becoming involved in programs like what uh, Larry is doing here with PD Gladiators, it would seem like gathering data on those people and their progress as they've been involved in a program like this would also contribute data to research outcomes as well, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> you choked her up. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Our Centers of Excellence is a network of 43 centers in the U.S., Canada, and around the world. There's 27 in the U.S., including Emory University here in Atlanta. And those centers form a network of places that are excellent in research, care, and outreach. 21 of those centers are collaborating with us on a massive database effort. We've got almost 8,000 patients and caregivers in there now, and we've been tracking for five years. And what we track is 
what treatments produce the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we are looking in that group at things like uh, cohorts, people who have had Parkinson's maybe for 20 years or more. We see that some people thrive, other people not so much. What's the difference in those people right. who are thriving? What allows them to do it? In, in a lot of cases, we see it's the care that they receive. And so we are both studying and disseminating what are the best treatments, and that Center of Excellence Network is helping us do that. Excellent care has been shown not only to reduce the incidence of falls, fractures, nursing home placements, caregiver burden, but also to extend life. Mm -hmm. We estimate that of the people who would normally die from Parkinson's, about six or 7,000 of them don't pass away in any given year because they have access to superior care. Expert care saves lives in Parkinson's and has been proven to significantly improve the quality of life, mobility, all kinds of functioning in Parkinson's. And when we're, and when we're looking at outcomes, um, improving patient outcomes, are we looking at, the, are those basically kind of based on patient interview, cognitive scoring, um, some do, doing some of those studies that they do in the early diagnosis phase, kind of continuing those over time to see, is there a trend line developing or is there a progression in either cognitive function or uh, balance, strength, et cetera? Is that what we're talking about when we're measuring yeah. outcomes? Yeah, outcomes is a combination of patient-reported outcomes. There's a huge move now in medicine to involve the patient yeah. and to look at things from the person's point of view. It doesn't necessarily matter if you're, if you're considered medically better, if you can't function in your daily life. So it's a combination of that along with some objective measures. There's an objective measurement for mobility, uh, a test for that, and there is objective measurement for things like cognition. Uh, we also track things like what's the burden on the family and the caregiver. That has been validated to show a direct correlation with how the disease advances. Interesting. And speaking of caregiving, how involved is your wife in the work that you're doing? She's uh, involved in every aspect of, of what we do. Uh, she, she's one of the of my co-founders of PD Gladiators and is very actively involved there. She facilitates our local support group. Um, she participates in, in all the exercise programs I do. And, and she has the, the personality, which is kind of uh, magnetic. She, 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 she draws the other care, caregivers into the, the programs, and it becomes, uh, I hate to say, a party atmosphere, but but we're having fun. Uh, you know, we're sick. We know we're we're eventually going to progress and and become disabled, but we're we're not going to do it lightly. Uh, we're we're fighters, and we're not going to give in to the disease. But we're we're going to have fun fighting it. So, for those of the those that are listening that have a Parkinson's disease in their family or caregiving, or even listening, and they may have some of these symptoms. You're an attorney, so your training, your education, you know, they're probably listening saying, of course he can do this, he's got this background. But, you know, in way of encouragement, if they don't have this background, what can they do to maybe advocate or to kind of find more information or even, you know, find a center of excellence? What, what advice do you have for those that may be listening? The, the most important thing to do is, is just find the community and get involved. Don't be afraid that, that you're going to see people that are more progressed than you and imagine it's yourself. Um, y you've, you've got to jump in, st start an exercise program, read the, the NPF's website, uh, learn as much as you can about the disease and talk to as many people as you can. There are a lot of uh, private groups on Facebook that, that uh, maybe younger people are more comfortable with, but people in their 50s and 60s are still fairly comfortable with technology. Um, but the important thing is fi find the community and start exercising, and don't delay and become complacent just because you're, you're feeling pretty good now. Um, the the dopamine-producing neurons die every day, by the time you're diagnosed, Joyce, correct me if I'm wrong, but 50 to 80% of your, of your 
your neurons are, are dead and they're not coming back. That's right. So you, you've got to get out there on, on day one, get diagnosed if you suspect uh, you, you have symptoms of Parkinson's like a tremor or rigidity and start exercising right away even if even if you're not sure of your diagnosis take it as a warning sign and do what every health, healthy American should be doing which is exercising yeah. a lot one of the um, symptoms that I recently heard actually from one of my dear favorite editors in the whole world um, he was recently about a year and a half ago diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and he was having these violent nightmares and um, he had was unfamiliar with that being a symptom as well, and I just wanted you to address that as well. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Sleep disturbances. There's something that's called REM sleep behavior disorder, and that is where normally we have dreams, but we are prevented by our brains from physically acting them out. It's when that inhibition goes and you are physically thrashing about in right. your dreams. You could be punching your, your spouse or bedmate. And what they have found is that sleep disturbances could be an early warning sign. About 40 to 50% of people who have REM sleep behavior disorder go on to develop Parkinson's mm -hmm. in about five years. So clearly, as a, as a person who's either themselves dealing with some symptoms that are worrisome, making, maybe wondering, gosh, I'm, I'm obviously tremor being one of the ones that most people are familiar with, but could be any number of things that it could be changing as it relates to their motor function. And they're going to get uh, seen by a physician. If you're told it's this and they don't say it's Parkinson's, it's probably a wise choice to be seen by another respected neurologist who's familiar with Parkinson's just to rule it out. Because I hear this over and over as it relates to cancer, you you name you name whatever problem that we can talk to uh, about health related issues, and you're one of the cl clearly easy mistakes that people can make is to truly just think this this physician I was speaking to, who's highly regarded and well educated, knows everything they need to know that about what could be affecting me. When that's not the case, and it's not a measure of incompetency. It's just a matter of have they been exposed to information that could be key to your outcome. So whatever it may be, clearly if we're talking about a loved one or yourself that's dealing with some symptoms that are potentially reflective of Parkinsonism, if you're not told in your initial visits that it's you know, Parkinson's is what we're facing, then it's worth a trip to somebody in the medical community that routinely deals with motor uh, type problems, as well as Parkinson's is something that they treat all the time just to rule it out effectively. Or, you know, if it is found to be Parkinson's, you can be followed by somebody that is very highly educated and sees it every day. Mm -hmm. So advocating on oneself is, is certainly important. Now, Joyce, you have a, an incredible background and um, used to work for another organization. I wanted to ask you what what's the differentiator? Because you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of great organizations. We as as with people with means can be supporting. What's the differentiator between National Parkinson's Foundation and everybody else that's doing work in this area? Well, the National Parkinson's Foundation is focused on helping people today and building the communities of support and education. And our research is focused on better care and treatments. Um, I used to work, you're quite right, at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. They're very focused on finding a cure, and that is a little bit different aspect on, of research, and it's solely a research-focused organization. All of the Parkinson's organizations come together for advocacy in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's great. We are all supportive of a group called the Parkinson's Action Network, uh, that does advocacy and lobbying for legislation that's Parkinson's-friendly, disability regulations, FDA approvals of, of drugs, and so forth and so on. So we all work together when uh, it comes to funding at the national level in terms of uh, National Institutes of Health funding or CDC funding. Right now, a bill has been introduced, as a matter of fact, to create a registry at the CDC for Parkinson's and MS and neurological conditions. And we're really hoping that we can get that through this Congress. Of course, 
Uh, it's always a little bit of a crapshoot with this Congress uh, to see if they're going to act and actually do anything. Uh, but we're hoping that we can we can make that happen. Well, and a lot of times, um, a lot of Health Connect South Radio, we have a lot of technology on this show and talking about big data and collection. So in the scheme of things, best practices, are you incorporating any big data results or trying to affiliate yourself with any of these companies that are looking at big data to see where the trends are, even to see what those big practice? I mean, talk to me about if that's part of the plan. Analytics, cloud Analytics. computing, things like that. Yeah. So funny you say that because we, ha- I have this man on my team. His name is Pete Schmidt. He's a PhD and he's a biostatistician and he lives for big data. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ha- is, we have a relationship right now with Intel and Intel is donating some computing time to us to do that sort of meta analysis of the big data in our database. Our database is one of the largest collections of Parkinson's data, but there's other databases out there. So they are doing meta-analyses to look at some of those big trends. Mm -hmm. That's great. As a patient, Larry, are you involved in any sort of research studies at all? I know that we we just spoke with Dr. Marshall Nash recently, Mm -hmm. who does a lot of work on Alzheimer's, but Parkinsonism is uh, a part of what he does. And then I've also recently spoken with Laura Stanley from the Foundation for Mitochondrial Diseases. And there's some thought that that can be a relationship there as relates to Parkinson's. So I was just curious, as a person in the community, are you involved in any kind of studies at all or anything like that? Uh, yes. Whenever I, I see a, an opportunity for a clinical trial that, that where I fit the, the parameters, I, I try to volunteer. Uh, I've participated in, in Dr. Madeline Hackney's tango studies. I'm particularly drawn to the exercise studies, naturally, um, especially early in my progression where I, I don't need a lot of new medications. You um, had said that you used to be a lollygaggler, which, by the way, I love that word, mm-hmm. on the elliptical, which, by the way, 10 minutes on the elliptical makes me gasp for breath. But <laughs> um, uh, did you have an interest in exercise before this? Uh, off and on throughout my life, I've been a vigorous exerciser and a couch potato. Yeah, me um, too. Haven't we all? Yeah. yeah. When I retired, I, I started playing a lot of tennis and, and racquetball and, and was exercising fairly vigorously. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that we're the same age and he's retired already. So I'm, Awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I want to be you. Yeah. Um, you know, clearly we're, as it happens here, our, our hour is running out. But And before we run out of time, one of the things that we want to do as part of the Health Connect South platform is to identify resources, if any, that uh, if only we had the access to this, whether it's, as you talked about, resources, you're collaborating with Intel and they're helping you do some data uh, computations, for example, and analytics. Are there resources, clearly funding, I, I, I understand, you know, being a nonprofit organization and, and being someone in the community that's trying to do some community outreach, funding is an important thing. So we, we certainly know that if somebody has resources and they want to try to help move... And an interest. Yes, that's right. If they can help with funding, and that's always a need. But are there other things that, uh, whether it's like you talked about, something on the analytics side or whatever resources you can think about that might move what you're doing further, faster? Anybody you'd like to meet that we can help you introduce you to? We rendered them speechless. That's You've rendered us speechless, exactly. <laughs> I come well, with the hard-hitting and it's questions. Only because and Drew, people aren't Drew, usually Drew, asking her what she wants. Yeah, what do you need? <laughs> right. uh, what do you need? How, how can, can we help you? you? I'd love to meet Warren Buffett. Is that? Yeah. yeah. I'd love to meet we'll Warren Buffett. We'll work on Buffett. that. Yeah. yeah. And He's been begging us to come on the show. We just haven't returned his calls yeah. yet. Yeah, and also Sergey Brin. I'd love to meet him. Okay. He does have Parkinson's in his family and um, does a, a tremendous amount of research funding but we think that there's also a need for care program funding. Okay. How about you, Larry? Anything you can think of as far as you, you talked about a, a collaboration that you have with YMCA? Are there other community-type fitness centers or other resources, whether they're faith-based places or city government, county government, anything like that that might possibly either generate greater awareness or greater access to facilities, whatever it may be? Right, right now, our, our priority is, is filling classes w- that, that we already have. Uh, we, we've got the 41 classes, and our theory is, is, is that 
we've, we've got to reach the patient at the neurologist level. He, he, that's where, where the uh, first diagnosis occurs, and, and it's the earliest point you can get the patient into the, the community, and we think the first thing they should do is get into the exercise community. Um, so w w we, we're looking for ways to reach out to, to neurologists and, and, and then beyond that to, to uh, just practicing physicians who, who, are, who are treating patients with Parkinson's disease. And, and, and we want the money. <laughs> you want the money. Show me the money. <laughs> Show me the money. And, and I, I, when I'm thinking and listening to Larry, I would just add one other person. I love to meet Oprah because one of the issues in Parkinson's is so very often, if it's underdiagnosed, it's particularly underdiagnosed in black communities mm -hmm. where uh, there is a lot of times they're underserved, they're so, they could be socioeconomically disadvantaged. So uh, I'd love to meet someone who could carry the message to that community as well as broadcast it broadly to Americans. I love that. So, you know, there's a lot of organizations you could be in charge of, president, CEO of. Why Parkinson's? What is this a, a issue that's close to your heart? Well, there is Parkinson's in my family. On my father's side, my grandmother and I have an aunt who did have Parkinson's. So uh, it's it's a passion of mine, not just because of that, but because it is one of those overlooked diseases that has been chronically underfunded where there has just been a tremendous need to build community and to bring the whole community together. I love that. So in, in your lifetime, do you see a cure happening for Parkinson's? My lifetime, it's difficult to say. We all hope for that. What I hope, however, is that a cure looks like at least having treatment get so much better that it becomes a chronic manageable condition. Mm -hmm. Or that when you're diagnosed, there's something to stop the progression. It may not cure Parkinson's, right. but it may stop, stop the, the progression, advance, yeah. stop it getting mm -hmm. worse. Mm -hmm. To me, those are the immediate goals. And then a cure comes from, like in cancer, a cure comes from extending life, extending life, improving life, until gradually it's not an issue anymore. If you had a couple of final thoughts for our, for our listeners, whether it's providers out there, philanthropists or patients, what would those be for you two before we had to jump off? Um, I, I hate, hate asking for money. I hate even asking Joyce for, for money. But, but to, to make uh, these programs work, uh, as, as a, the, the CEO of a, of, a, of a company with Parkinson's, I know I'm not going to be able to do it forever. So I mean, one of our goals over the next two or three years is to try to transition to paid staff. And that's going to take additional money. So, uh, you know, at this point, we're a little awkward and in, 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 in not knowing how to, how to reach out to philanthropists. But w one of our goals over the next year is to uh, get get a little training in, in, in that and, and trying to re reach out to the right people who can help us achieve our goals over the long run and, and become a sustaining organization. Mm -hmm. How about you, Joyce? Well, what I would just say is Parkinson's, like so many neurological conditions, is going to increase substantially over the next 20 years. The needs of an aging population are just going to grow tremendously. We as a society need to pay more attention to that because that's ultimately where we're all going to be. And so creating the programs, the infrastructure, the support for an aging population, uh, 50s, 60s, and so on, is going to benefit all of us as a community. And it's something that uh, the whole community should work together to build. 
Well, Joyce Oberdorf, National Parkinson's Foundation, and Larry Kahn of PD Gladiators and a Parkinson's uh, patient yourself, thank you both for making time out of your very busy schedules to come and share this information. Hopefully, uh, we'll be putting it in the hands of somebody that either can make a difference for you or conversely, uh, maybe their outcome will be improved because they got to hear your, your, your message today. So either way, it'll be a win, Diana. Thanks for taking time out of your day from Sherwick Media Group to join us on the mic in the studio. Always a pleasure. Your host, C.W. Hall, here on Health Connect South Radio. Thank you very much for making us a part of your morning again today. We'll see you same time, same place next week. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media Group. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sherwick.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.